as you can tell, Alistair and I are in a competition to see who can get the most emotional when they read scripture. Um, and I do have to say, this sort of sneaky tactic of shrinking the bulletin to try to shorten my sermons is not going to work. Okay. It is what it is. We got time. Um, over the past five weeks, we've been going through a sermon series on the family of God, and we've mostly been camping out in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, and rightly so, because Paul has so much to say in there about the subject of the family of God. And the biblical teaching about God's family is plentiful, and Brandon and Alistair took us through five categories that help us understand what it's all about and what is provided for and expected from life in this family, which is also called the church. We learned the family is marked by godly character as, as we went through Ephesians 4, 1 through 12, including humility and gentleness, patience, and love. These are things that, that are the character of the family of God. The family is marked by unity um, we looked at that in Ephesians 4, 3, um, unity and conviction, unity that is from the Holy Spirit, and unity that is for the glory of God. And we learned about the focus of the family of God in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we continue to learn and learn about the work of the family in Ephesians 4, 7 through 12, where we, we believe, we serve, we build up the body. And Alistair showed us that there is a breadth and a depth to the family of God. And as he looked at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, it's a supernatural breadth where God removes division and hostility for unity and peace. And it's a supernatural depth where God has taken people who are foreigners and strangers and made them citizens and family together. The family of God is vast, but as vast and amazing and wonderful as it is to be in the family of God, one big question remains. One major question left on the table regarding the family of God. Are you even in it? Because if you're not in the family of God, there's only one other family that you could belong to, and that is the family of your father, the devil. If you're not in the family of God, you cannot fully benefit from its blessings on earth, and you will not benefit from it at all in eternity. Are you in it? This is a sobering question, and it should be. Because there's no more important question in the world than this. As we heard at the beginning of the service today, in our opening scripture reading, we are to be awake, to be sober. That is, we are to be alert, aware of deception from the truth. That's what we want to talk about today. You pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, that... Your word is truth. 
And that, Father, I ask that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. Help us not to be dull of understanding this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you in the family? Why do we have to ask this? I mean, we're all here, aren't we? We're in the, we're in the building. We have to ask this because people have often believed wrongly about how one enters the family of God in the first place. We must ask the question of ourselves because one is not a Christian because he comes through the doors of the church every week. You're not a Christian because you sit in these pews. You're not a Christian because you've read your Bible. You're not a Christian because you live in America. That's a popular belief. You're not a Christian because you wear a cross around your neck. You're not a Christian because you feel like you are or because you say you are. You're not a Christian because your parents are. You're not a Christian because you, you raised your hand one day and prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. You're not a Christian because you were baptized. You're not a Christian because you partake in the Lord's Supper. You're not a Christian because you think you're a good person. You're not a Christian because you think you do the right things or hold the right traditions. A lot of those things may be true of you, but the truth is, if you are a Christian, it's not because of any of those things. If you are a Christian, there's only one reason, only one way that it happened. And it must have happened for you to be in the family of God. You must have been born again, period. To ask if you're in the family of God is to ask, have I been born again? Just think about it to yourself. I don't want an audible response. Are you born again? This might be the time, the first time that you've even thought about that. Or maybe you're thinking, that's some old-fashioned, Bible-thumping, revival-meeting language. Right? Southern, Southerners. That's what I think about. But you would be wrong. This is biblical language. Biblical truth. Right from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, it must take place for anyone to ever enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, and he secretly went to Jesus at night to inquire about him. In that meeting, which John records for us in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is spiritual rebirth. You can say you're a Christian all you want and that you're part of the family of God. But Jesus said, if you have not been born again by the Spirit of God, you are not going to see the kingdom of God. Oh, people like to think there are lots of ways to get to God. But our Lord Jesus Christ said, He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And if that wasn't enough to clear things up for you, he shuts the door on any thought to the contrary. 
when he finishes that very verse in John 14, 6, saying, No one comes to the Father except through me. It can't be any clearer. No one. My friends, Jesus is the only way to salvation and eternal life, and that comes with the added benefit of being placed into the family of God. So before Paul even gets to writing all that we've been looking at in the fourth chapter of Ephesians about being in the family of God, he begins by reminding his readers about their salvation, and it is a glorious truth. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul writing to Christians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. But let it be known that anyone who has ever been a Christian or who is a Christian now or who will ever be a Christian and thereby in the family of God it is only because before he ever created anything, God, the Father, chose them in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he also lovingly predestined Christians to be, what Paul said, adopted by him. That is our familial language that we've been talking about. If you are in the family, it's because God adopted you to himself as sons and daughters. How? Paul says, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his own will. You see, it's only through Jesus Christ that someone is born again and adopted into God's family. And this he graciously lavished, it says, upon Christians. How amazing is that? But are you in the family? Oh yeah, I, I do this and that. I'm, I'm a nice person. I help others. I come to church. In other words, you do a bunch of stuff, so you're in, right? You are born again through doing good stuff and being the right kind of person. Sorry. Paul clears that up in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, that again shuts down any argument for getting us in by being good enough. We need to be reminded here that when the Bible talks about the grace of God, it is never talking about something deserved. We don't deserve that. The word is talking about God's unmerited favor. It's not because of you. Why does God ultimately do it then? Back up to verse 7 hear this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
These are the strong biblical truths that Paul lays out before he ever talks to his readers about what the family of God is like. And, and to the truly saved, these words are really music to the ears. To the unbelieving heart set on trying to please God through doing stuff, this is a powerful rebuke. Not every creature is a child of God. If you are in the family, it's because of this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12 through 13. Born again, you see. Spiritual rebirth through the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. That's how you get in. Are you in the family of God? Have you become a child of God by being born again? Have you been adopted by God? Or do you merely think you are because you feel like it? Or because you say you are? Or because you do Christian things? I know many of you already know these truths, but there are some here today who may not. Some who may be self-deceived or deceived by others into a false sense of security. Answering the question, am I in the family of God, requires a certain level of self-examination. And this is not my idea or something I made up. It comes from the scriptures. And that's why the message today is titled, Examine Yourself. It's what the Lord tells us to do through his word. And Paul explicitly says to examine yourself. For what? Listen to what he says in our main text for today, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. The focus of the examination or testing is not other people. It's yourself. Not to see if others are in the faith, but are you? Paul says it twice emphatically. Examine yourselves. It means to try to prove a thing by trial. What is the quality of it? And to test yourselves. Uses this idea of metals tested by fire to get to the to the genuine or real thing. In fact, Paul is actually commanding the people to continually be examining themselves. This is not a one-time thing. Paul's emphasizing the importance of this testing to see whether you are in the faith. Not in a faith. Not in some faith. Not in any faith. But the faith. There is only one faith, one way, one truth. Christians are reassured by this testing that Jesus Christ is in them. If the test is not met, Christ is not in you. In other words, you are not saved. You are not in the family of God. Now this seems to fly in the face of other parts of Scripture where we're told that we have a living hope where the Holy Spirit is a, a seal 
a guarantee of our salvation, of our inheritance. Is this a contradiction? Isn't this a call for us all to doubt our salvation? No, it's not. The reality is, Paul knew, though he was writing to the church at Corinth, to Christians in that church, that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone in the building is a Christian. Not every profession of faith is genuine. And this command to self-examination has two purposes. One is to reassure and bring about steadfastness for Christians. The other is to warn those who are deceived that they stand condemned. The fact that the church has unconverted people in it is nothing new. Even Even within Jesus' own inner circle, there was an imposter. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil, Jesus said. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The other eleven didn't even suspect Judas. When Jesus told them one of them would betray him, they didn't look at Judas and go, it's Judas, I know it, clearly. No, they all wondered if it was themselves. Apparently Judas hid it pretty well. In Matthew 13, Jesus gave the parable of the weeds and described how the weeds are growing along with the wheat. This is explaining that there are believers and there are unbelievers. Even the Ephesian elders were warned by Paul, as recorded in Acts 20, about those who are in the congregation, but not in the family. He told them, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. From among their own selves, from among the elders. But perhaps there are no more terrifying words in the New Testament than those Jesus spoke, as recorded in Matthew 7. Turn there, if you will. As I read them, I want you to hear them through this lens of self-examination. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here we have a scene described by Jesus where he has come for judgment and there are many, he says, who will at that moment learn they have no part in the family of God. And we need to know who these people are because they are not Buddhists, 
They're not Hindus. They're not Muslims. Nor are they atheists. Why? Because these groups don't and never have claimed to be a part of the family of God. For they worship false gods. They remain condemned in their sin for their complete rejection of Jesus Christ. They're not claiming to be in the family. No, what we see here are those who claim Christ. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. In your name, see. The people who will hear those terrible words are people who thought they were in. They claim the name of Jesus Christ. They thought they were working for him. They thought they did many wonderful things in his name. Not only were they not adopted into the family of God through Christ, but he also says, I never knew you. These are people who went to church. They sat in the pews. They sang the songs, read the Bible, had meals with Christians, got baptized, partook of the Lord's Supper, maybe even taught Sunday school or preached sermons. But they were not in the family of God. Why? They were never born again. How is that possible? They sat in the pews and heard all the sermons. You see, people can be self-deceived. They can go through the motions of some form of Christianity, but their hearts remain unchanged. There was never any self-examination. Jesus addressed this among the leaders of the Jews when he chastised them for not following the Lord's commands. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And look with me, if you would, at Luke 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but though the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference here is the presence of a broken and humble heart before God, not self-righteousness. 
So people are in the congregation thinking they are saved. They are not. But you and I cannot tell who's who sometimes. We don't know people's hearts, do we? So we can rightly announce from the pulpit, if you're sitting here and you do not yet know Christ as Savior, please repent and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And everyone, including the self-deceived and unconverted person, looks around in agreement to see who that might be. Never looking into their own heart. This is why Paul called on the people to examine themselves. Are you in faith? Are you in the family of God? In order for a person to test themselves, they must have something to measure by. For Christians, that is the word of God. We measure our lives by what God says. We must allow the word of God to inform our thinking and our way of life. Examine yourselves by submitting to yourselves, submitting yourselves to the scrutiny of Scripture. There are lots of tests or proofs of genuine Christianity, Christianity for us in the Bible. You read the whole book of First John, and it's full of them. I don't have the ability to go through all of them today, but I wanted to give you a couple of question categories to ask yourselves this morning for self-examination. And the first category is, what have you believed? Do you believe what God says about himself, that he is God and there is none like him? That he is the creator of the heavens and the earth? That he is all-powerful and everywhere all at once? That he knows everything and has declared the end from the beginning? That he alone is worthy of worship and praise? Do you believe what God says about himself, that he is three in one, that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. Three distinct persons at the same time. Do you believe what God says about you? That you have sinned and have missed the mark of God's standard of righteous perfection. That you have broken His laws. That it's not just about the sins you commit, but the problem is you have a sin nature. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Do you believe what God says about you that you are not a good person and by your sin nature have earned for yourself eternal punishment and hell? Or do you reject that? You think, I'm not that bad. God wouldn't punish me forever in hell. Do you believe what God says about you that you have nothing to offer him that would cause him to save you? That you are lost and without hope in the world apart from Jesus Christ? That everything you would hold up as a reason God should save you is like giving him a filthy rag. It's an attempt at bribery of the most extreme. Do you believe what God says about the need to be born again? That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ? Or do you think there might be other ways? Do you believe what God says about you, that you must repent from your sin, turn from it, 
toward God and humble yourselves before him. And like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, all you can do is cry out, have mercy on me, sinner. Do you believe that you are saved by grace through faith and that it's a gift of God, that salvation is not a result of works because men would boast about it if it was? Do you believe what God says that he sent his only son to die on the cross in your place? That he was the perfect sacrifice because he lived the sinless life that you cannot? So that he could go to the cross and offer himself in your place? That he took your sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God for you? That Jesus takes on your filthy, sin-stained clothing and covers you in the clean robes of his righteousness. And do you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead on the third day for your justification? And believing all of this is a test of your profession of faith. Because these are all things God teaches us in the Bible. If we reject them, we are rejecting the standard for truth and exchanging it for something else. Something we have come up with because it appeals to us more. Most likely something that retains small bits of biblical truth but allows me to do the things I want to do. The second category for examination. You say you're a Christian. What has changed? Has anything changed? Examine yourself. Has God given you a new heart? Do you hate what God hates? Do you have a hatred for sin, especially your own? Or do you make excuses as to how you can have Christ and your sin? Do you have a submissive spirit toward the commands of God or do you rebel against them? Examine your life, not just what everyone else sees. I can see you sitting here. Truly examine yourself. What do you do in secret? What do you think in secret? What do you believe in secret? Are you still what you've always been, a drunkard, a cheat, a liar, a blasphemer, an adulterer? Are you still sleeping around? Do you follow the pattern of this world? Do you put possessions and people and position above worship of Christ? Do you never or hardly ever read your Bible? Or only consider God when you're in trouble? And this is not about always doing everything right. It's about the pattern of your life. To be devoted to Jesus in obedience. In short, have you been changed? That is what God does through the new birth. You're born again. There is change. 
You cannot be a Christian and be unchanged. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are not things a person brings with them into the family of God. Paul said here, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, by the way. And Paul said, such were some of you. Not any longer. Past tense. You were washed, he said. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Is Christ in you? Charles Spurgeon said about this. Now what is it to have Jesus Christ in you? The true Christian carries the cross in his heart. And a cross inside the heart, my friends, is one of the sweetest cures for a cross on the back. If you have a cross in your heart, Christ crucified in you, the hope of glory, all the crosses of this world's troubles will seem to you light enough and you will easily be able to sustain it. Christ in the heart means Christ believed in, Christ beloved, Christ trusted, Christ espoused, Christ communed with, Christ as our daily food and ourselves as the temple and palace wherein Jesus Christ daily walks. Is Christ in you? First John 2, 4-6 through says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the third category for self-examination is, what is your life about? People like to believe that life is about our status, our, our stuff, our health, our retirement, our entertainment, our desires, our ideas, our vacations, our relationships, our careers, our friends. Are these the, th the things on your mind all the time? Life is not about those things. Life is about knowing Christ through repentance and faith in Him for eternal life. Then it's about serving Christ from now on. When we place other things as more important, it's called idolatry. We are putting things and other people in a place that belongs only to Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.8. Is that how you think of Christ? This doesn't mean that 
we have none of these other things. But it all needs to take a back seat to Christ. This is not just for pastors or church leaders or missionaries. This is for all Christians. This is where life in the family of God comes in. You are not, first and foremost, what you do for a living. You are to be a Christian who does this or that for a living. You think about and make decisions based on what God says. You consider Christ in all your ways and in all your decisions. If I have sinned, how does God tell me to respond? I learn that and do it. Not what my flesh wants me to do. If someone sins against me, how does God tell me to respond? I learn that he commands me to forgive. And then I do it. Not hold a grudge like my flesh wants me to do. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The command is to acknowledge God in all your ways and he will make straight your paths. We acknowledge God by making our lives about studying and knowing him through his word. Are you in it? Is your life marked by the characteristics of the family of God that we've been looking at for the past five weeks? Christians are devoted to each other, to the church, to the word of God, to obedience to God's commands, to prayer, to fellowship. Is the Spirit of God at work within you? Are you using your spiritual gifts in the family of God? Are you serving the church? Or are you a spectator? I want to remind you that the scriptural command to self-examination is not so that you will doubt your salvation. On the contrary, God's Word clearly communicates that there is joy in knowing that you are saved. And you can know it. We sometimes lose that joy because of the trials of life. But God will restore it. We should ask, like King David, that God would, in those trials, restore to us the joy of his salvation. If we are Christians, when you and I examine our beliefs, our changed hearts, and what our lives are about in Christ, it does something different than create doubt. Let me also remind you, if you are truly saved, truly born again, you are truly in the family of God, and this is forever. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Look with me at 1 Peter 1, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. First Peter 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, we go with the testing language, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is being kept for you. You are being guarded. You are a Christian. The genuineness of your faith may be tested by fire, but it will result in praise and glory and honor towards Christ. Need more? He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And Paul tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's not failure. You can't lose your salvation. You can't ultimately walk away from it. No one can take it from you. Christ will not let you go. He is perfecting you, Christian. Examine yourself to be even more grounded than ever in this truth. This is not to test because you doubt, but to test so there is no doubt. This is, this is a gracious thing because the testing is not so God will know. God doesn't have to test you to know. He already knows who are his. The testing is for you. So you will know and rejoice in the hope of your salvation. People who fail the test, Paul says, are found to be without Christ. Which, if you thought you were, puts you in danger of being the one standing before Christ, listing off your churchianity as a reason you should be led into heaven. The good news is, if you're examining yourself today, and discovered that Christ is not in you, it's not too late. The only message for you is the greatest message of all. Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you. If you will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sin and trust Jesus alone for salvation, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you've never even considered Jesus. Maybe you come here because the worst thing in your life is happening or has happened. You've come here for help, for answers, for your pain to go away. Let me tell you, that God does not promise to take your pain away or your troubles away or make your life easy. That's not why we should come to him. You may not know it, but you've really come because you know something is not right in your life. And it's sin. You know you're guilty before God because the Spirit of God is convicting you, but you don't know what to do. You come. 
you know that what awaits you after you die is horrific. My friend, Jesus is the answer. And today is the day of salvation. You say, God cannot save someone as bad as me. Or am I not just a hypocrite for living my life, sinful life, and, and then coming to God because I can't bear it? Well, that's not hypocrisy. It's desperation. It's rightful fear of God. God is calling you, drawing you in. Pride is what keeps you from submitting to his will. Let it go. God will change you. Job 28, 28 says, And, and he said to man, this is God speaking, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Respond to God's call today if you're not in his family. Do not continue in unbelief. Cry out to God in your heart, even as you sit in your seat. You come to Christ, and your life won't be free from pain, heartbreak, sadness, trials. You won't become wealthy, but your sins will be forgiven. Your sins will be forgiven and never to be counted against you. You'll be right with God in Christ. You'll be born again, made a new creature in Christ. You'll be adopted by God into his family, and no matter what trials life holds, your eternal salvation will be sure because God has said so. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Examine yourselves daily. Not to doubt or be downcast and in fear, but so there is no doubt that you belong to the family of God and you are in Christ and he is in you. It's only by the power of the Spirit of God. It's only through Christ and you must be born again. As we sing songs of praise, we, we don't do so to manipulate our feelings or emotions. We often are emotional when we sing. We don't sing so we can feel good. We sing because we're praising God for his infinite goodness and grace. Our songs are a remembrance of such a great Savior. Listen to the words as we sing them. The emotions flow because we hear the words and are reminded of our lowly state as sinners, but of Christ occupying the highest heights as our Redeemer and our Lord and our King. He is the head of the church, family of God. Are you in it? Examine yourselves continually. Let the Word of God expose areas of unbelief or rebellion in your life. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
don't remain in unbelief. Repent of your sin. Trust Christ only for your salvation, not your own works, your self-righteousness. Set aside your pride. Do it today. Who of you knows when you'll take your last breath and enter into eternity? None of us do. Don't wait. If after the service you want to talk about being born again, come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word, as always. We thank you for your word. For without it, we would know nothing of Christ. Father, I pray, knowing that you can see every heart in this building all at once. Pray, Lord, that you are calling, that you are drawing, that your word is cutting to the heart of any unbelievers here. Pray, Lord, that people will set aside pride. And if they don't understand everything, Lord, they would come to you as the tax collector. Have mercy on me, sinner. We don't have to know everything. Father, the thief on the cross mocked Jesus until you changed his heart came to a place of humility, acknowledging the innocence of Christ. And Lord, we have that message from Christ in that moment. Today you will be with me in paradise. Lord, I pray that unbelieving hearts here would cry out today. Simply cry out acknowledging their sinfulness, their need for a Savior. And we thank you that, that your Son is that Savior. You loved us so much that you sent him to die in our place. Anyone who believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Lord, as we sing, may our hearts and minds be drawn to you. May the words that we sing in remembrance of Christ fill our hearts, not with doubt, but with thanksgiving. Because you are wonderful and mighty God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.